Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Venture capital is a small subset of private equity. It's a term surrounded in mystique and fable. In reality, the world of startups is filled with the highs and lows of hard work, loneliness, crushing disappointment, and sometimes unbelievable success. The bold founders usually have a vision to disrupt the status quo and build a new world around that idea. The VC community is a unique culture that understands the founders' motivations. It provides the resources, support, and discipline to help them prove their idea, grow, survive, adapt, and thrive in the face of the longest odds. They say it takes a village. In venture capital, the hope is that these mavericks are surrounded by an ecosystem of investors that understand the disruption they feed and have the patience to let them manifest their vision. Julie Fredrickson is the managing partner of Chaotic Capital. She will help us understand what it takes to survive and thrive in this space and skewer some sacred cows along the way. Welcome aboard, Julie. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, this is a lot of fun as we are Twitter buddies, and it's always nice to put faces to names, even if it's virtual. So this is a treat for me. Let's get into venture capital generally and as an asset class. It's something that I think has a lot of curb appeal for people and the idea of investing in the next Facebook or some other world changer is exciting. But venture capital itself is a strange asset class for people who are maybe let's call it East Coast people like myself who like cash flows and steady businesses and so on. Maybe talk a little bit about your background and then we'll talk a little bit about venture capital generally. Yeah, that sounds like a great plan, since my background is probably the thing that makes venture look a little less weird to me, even though I think anyone with experience in, shall we say, exotic asset classes understands just how small venture capital is relative to the rest of, technically, venture is a sub-asset of private equity. So it's always fun to discuss just how weird and how small the industry is relative to the rest of finance. And that's probably a pretty good reflection on just how weird and small I am comparative to the rest of finance. My background is a little odd in that I am the child of two hippies who moved from their respective homes to go west, as used to be the great mythos of America, to Silicon Valley. And I was born in the poor, crappy town of Fremont, which is no longer so poor and crappy, but it was in the 80s. And I got to grow up through the first major wave of commercialization in the 80s and 90s as a child watching my own parents work. And as it's a fun, exciting, and wacky thing to spend your life looking at gadgets being built in garages, literally the fabled garage DIY homebrew. So I probably knew from very early on that this was going to be the space that I went into. But I never followed any of the traditional paths, which are go to more prestigious university, go into investment banking, and then slowly transition your way through the asset classes. I went straight into founding businesses. So put myself through University of Chicago, got an economics degree, and then immediately realized there was no way I was paying back those debts unless I could find 
a way to actually make some proper money. So began a company that was advertising technology. I didn't actually go to Silicon Valley. I went to New York because I realized there was more opportunity to take the technology elsewhere. That company was eventually sold. I actually think I might have been 23 at the time. So very, very fast. It was an enjoyable whirlwind. The fun fact of it is, is I think I sold it in 2007. So within a very short order was called in to the rip good times and global financial crisis and got to experience that process. So that's all a very elaborate way of providing the context that because I was raised in Silicon Valley and understood more of the on the ground operational aspects, I decided it would be better to learn it by doing. You started out, you have a nice success with your first company, and then you went on to other companies or how did that work before you went into the fund environment? I was not sure that I was actually any good at it. Selling the company, going through diligence and having to actually formalize some of the business processes that I had been winging it, because what else do you do in your early 20s? I decided that I needed a stint in corporate. So I went and spent time inside several large brands. Now, keep in mind that the company that I had, the name of it was called Couture, which was a pun on couture and fashion being paid because we were an ad tech business that primarily sold into luxury fashion houses and cosmetics. We were the original advertising agency for Gucci and Prada, subsequently LVMH. And so I was able to parlay that experience into taking over the e-commerce P&L at Ann Taylor. Deliberately did that because I thought, if I'm going to do this operator thing, perhaps I should be in a real business and not just something I started myself. Part of that was definitely that global macro was not particularly great in 2009 through 11 or so. So built up a lot of time in the e-commerce and corporate space. So you name a e-commerce brand, I probably had something to do with building out their infrastructure. I started another company that was a failure, did not go very far. That was going to be more advertising and marketing tech. And despite that, was undeterred. And the direct consumer trend of bringing more brands into the online space was my next foray. I started a cosmetics company that was direct to consumer. We sold only travel size cosmetics because nobody else did it at the time, raised both venture capital and private equity for that. And I then subsequently exited the company to a private equity firm. And after I think running three startups for 15 years or so and having my corporate stint, I thought like any athlete, perhaps it's time to retire. And retirement in startup land means you begin your second career investing and putting things back. So that is how I got my start. And that was way too long, but hopefully at least modestly entertaining. No, I mean, it's important because I think a lot of people out there think that maybe from an investment banking perspective, or maybe they're a part of one thing that does well, that they are uniquely and well-equipped to deal with a whole bunch of different speed bumps along the way, both in the venture world and then in the investing in venture world. And I think it's important for people to hear that you've had a lot of different experiences, both positive and negative, in getting to where you are now. Having to capitalize yourself as an operator is a fairly common path to understanding why it is that startups have some of the financing requirements they do, what it looks like. And we may underappreciate just how unique it is 
two capitalized companies that are often building new tech that doesn't have clear monetization strategies, isn't necessarily clear how it will be adopted, depending on how established your customer base is. And in my case, when I got started, e-commerce in particular was not the sure slam dunk that it is now. Selling a heritage brand like Gucci on the idea that you could sell $10,000 handbags online was not the obvious statement in 2023 that it was in 2007. So going through the process of understanding why you have certain capital requirements, who is best suited to the type of capital you need, what the process of actually scaling and building it out, and then also subsequently, the most important thing that you can learn is how do you get liquidity on it? So having gone through diligence and exit processes, both to another startup in my first case, the company that I sold to Sugar Inc., and then they sold it to the global juggernaut that is Rakuten. So actually, some of my code from back then still runs, which is pretty exciting. Oh, that's terrific. Although a little scary. You should probably update it 20 years on, give or take. The more things change, the more they stay the same. If you are in the habit of building businesses and you understand what good management looks like, what execution looks like, and if you're able to garner resources, that should translate in any language. But yeah, things can get different. And I guess to the current, the fun that you've got now, and let's talk about that a little bit. So first, before we get into chaotic and how you think about things from a differentiation standpoint, I think most listeners probably understand the idea that venture capital, you've got to kiss a lot of frogs in order to get a prince and that the ratio of success is small, but when it happens, it's massive. How do you think about what the success of an individual investment looks like? So this is probably the most uncomfortable facet of the venture business. And 20 years ago, venture was not particularly professionalized. You would generally, as a startup operator, look for things like friends and family capital or something that we called at the time angel investing, which was just somebody who could write a slightly larger check and understood that by structuring the deal very early on, they had the capacity to then find further people down the line. And again, venture is a subsection of private equity. But it is a very tiny subsection of private equity because most of the things that you're looking for in more of a traditional private equity transaction do not exist in a startup. In fact, you actually probably don't want some of the things to exist because one in a hundred is actually likely to generate the actual outsized returns. So it's a little bit akin to maybe Hollywood or the music business in that you are, as you put it, kissing a lot of frogs. And you often do not know. Startups change, they pivot, something will happen, and they, in the process of throwing spaghetti at the wall, will find something that sticks. And that's what we call product market fit, where you're just experimenting and running it over and over and over again and hoping that you'll get kicked into a flywheel that you can then professionalize. And then the deals start to look a little bit more like something you might expect in a private equity transaction. So that's kind of the process, right? Where you are making a lot of small bets. You have to be really careful to not make too many assumptions about what the path to success looks like, because it is a 10-year process. 
And you're making a 10-year bet in many ways, not just on the technology and the product fit, but on the, in many ways, the maturity and the execution of the founder and maybe their ability to go from larva to butterfly, from founder to executive. How do you think about that when you're making those decisions? And in many ways, it seems to me like the tech can come or go if it's disruptive and it fits certain criteria, that's great. But if in the hands of the wrong person, that's just like betting on the wrong tech in many ways. How do you think about that when you're looking at the people behind the company? It's tough because the larva that turns into the butterfly is pretty ugly. I talked to a lot of weirdos. And when I say weird, I mean, if if you're not extremely online, which I am, I'm professionally extremely online, I will meet with people whose names I don't know, who have avatars of anime characters, who have completely illegible systems of communication unless you speak their language. So while we have this idea that everyone is communicating with the same set of backgrounds and precepts, The hacker types that make software are often very far from turning into executives. And so you are looking for someone who can listen to the market as effectively as possible. And they may not even know what a market is because, again, they're technologists first and foremost. Not that there hasn't been a class of people who are more, shall we say, McKinsey investment banker types who can build out a perfect financial model, the popular quote goes, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So I spend a lot of time discussing hardship with founders. When was the last time they got punched in the face? How did they react? What was the approach? Did they get back up? And those are obviously metaphors, but There is the very real reality of the market is your final muse and arbiter. And if you cannot react to what people actually want, doesn't matter how good your technology is, you will not be able to adapt it into something that people pay for. Right. And if you don't have the resources, I would think an interesting question might be what happens when the money runs out and you have to go out and find more? Are those people willing to have the stick and the ability to pivot to be able to shift the message a little bit? and gather the resources to say, hey, we're on stage two now, as opposed to, oh, my God, we're just trying to keep this going. Yeah. And this is where the professionalization of the industry has been pretty interesting. And you can make a lot of arguments that we over-professionalized because it was the sexy industry for a decent chunk of time, right? As uh, macro conditions like ZERP, zero interest phenomena, took off, it became easier to capitalize some of these businesses. And that wasn't necessarily always a good thing because resource constraints can often breed creativity. And the expectation that there was going to be a clear path from here is enough money to get you to milestone one. And then you find out, well, actually, we needed three times as much money or we needed half of the money. You have to be ready to change your plans, sometimes on a dime, right? So in my case, the diligence that I went through on my first company was actually pretty intense. And then the second I landed and the paperwork closed, I was in this new environment, having gone through what I thought was integrating a pretty good piece of tech into a larger organization. And then bam, financial crisis hits. A fund that people may be familiar with, Sequoia, was the primary backer of the startup that acquired mine. 
And I got pulled into the rip good times meeting in which the discussion is no more capital is coming. You guys are on your own. You need to figure out how to make money with the things that you have. Because there's always this tension between growing as fast as you can and growing within the constraints of what can be done with your current capital base. And this is really what venture capital is still struggling with because individual investments can't always show you determinatively what a wider space is. You don't always know which bets are going to pay off. And so your portfolio approach is always trying to arm these founders with the capacity to react and productively get through different macro environment changes. But you don't necessarily know when the creativity to find out how to take something that is not established existing tech and make it into something that's a juggernaut. So let's veer off into what makes your fund a little bit different and some of the points of differentiation in the way you look at things. Reminder for listeners, this is an education, not an endorsement, not advocating for one thing or the other here. But let's talk a little bit about underwriting these businesses themselves, what you look for. I went through a little bit about what you're up to on this area. And these points, I think, are important for people to understand how professionals go through and analyze not just the businesses and the people, but trying to map out what you're describing, which is how to get out the other side and end up doing well by it. Yeah, because it is not easy. And the difference between a median venture fund and a high performing one is actually quite dramatic. Just like most startups fail, most venture funds are also not necessarily beating the market. And I have been a little surprised at how successful venture has been from a public relations perspective, because we discuss it as if it is much more formed and clear what inputs lead to successful outputs. And I don't think it's necessarily true. I was going to say, I think there's a lot of myth making that goes along with that. There's so many outsized examples of massive success, the Elons, the Zuckerbergs, et cetera, that came out of it in some ways that it swamps the actual numbers behind what's going on in the subspace there. And this is where I think having grown up in it and watched multiple cycles play out is actually a little bit key to my secret sauce on this. I didn't bring it up earlier, but my experience in the global financial crisis was not the first time I went through a nasty venture downturn. In 2001, my father went bankrupt, and so our family got wiped out in the 2000-2001 crash of the first, what we call the Web 1 bubble, right? And so the cyclical nature of we put in this capital, things get exciting, lots of people rush in thinking this is where the alpha is. And they don't always understand that the business models are not necessarily fully formed. You're making a bet on where something is going to be 10 years later, and it's very easy to get wiped out. It is not the same thing as investing in a public company in which forecasting is relatively straightforward. Going through a P&L, understanding what your cost is, understanding where your margins are, and becoming an efficient operating vehicle is not what startups are about. Generally speaking, they don't know any of that. And if you do not know any of that, your predictive capacity is much, much lower. And so 
having experienced multiple waves of this is the next big thing. Oh, wow, this is incredible. Well, the whole world is going to change. And then everything goes to shit. Not like you lost 20% off the top. No, you are ruined. You didn't just touch the stove. You full on put your palm on it and held it there for a little while. You've got char marks in a circular pattern on your fingers. Yeah, it's a fun process. Not a fan of roller coasters. Not a space to be in. If you think roller coasters are pretty fun, there is no more exciting space than getting in very, very early. But the mistake of assuming that just because all of the investment bankers and management consultants and the middle tier of professional executives decided that they no longer wanted to work for McKinsey or Jamie Dimon, they wanted to work for Mark Zuckerberg, doesn't actually mean that it is professional, right? A lot of it is cargo cult, where we'll repeat these processes that worked for someone else, but we don't know why they worked. And some people that are deep in the weeds can definitely tell you why they worked. So cargo cult is a reference to I have no idea if it's even a politically correct thing to discuss anymore. America would drop supplies on islands, and cultures developed ways of replicating what they thought was bringing the cargo to them. But of course, none of those rituals were actually the thing. And the rituals that have grown up in the last wave of startups are not always going to be true for something new. So as much as plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, yes and no. Sometimes something genuinely new comes out and we have to change our whole thinking around what the productization looks like. And you have to go back then to the basic math of, did we actually get in early enough in which we didn't overvalue the company? Do we understand what kind of assets they're going to need to work through the plans and run the experiments because all of the different methodologies for how you build software, how you monetize it, what it looks like can change in the face of something genuinely new. So in my case, when I got started in e-commerce, we had a lot more options for tracking and there was not necessarily these marketplaces like on Facebook and Google but you could still find ways of getting the data you needed to make sure you could bring someone in and have a repeatable cost of acquisition process. And it got really good for a while. You could really understand exactly how much money you needed to put in to acquire a customer. You could track it back very efficiently. And that's no longer true because Facebook and Apple are in the middle of a fight. There's something called ATT which is the cookie process of understanding who you are and the data from all of your browsing habits. That's how you get things like retargeting and remarketing and they follow you and they understand exactly how to advertise to you to get you to convert. That used to be a well-understood process. And then Apple decided to kneecap Facebook, which then subsequently kneecapped all of the e-commerce platforms. So Shopify, huge juggernaut of e-commerce, suddenly can't help any of the shops that are built on top of their software because Apple changed a fundamental capacity for passing on data by saying you didn't necessarily need to opt in. And so now whole industries can no longer do the math. This is when the algorithm shifts underneath your feet. I mean, for some listeners out there who 
maybe they build their influencer business on their Instagram following or their Twitter following or something like that. And then all of a sudden the conditions completely change. That's a little bit what you're talking about there. Only you're talking about direct to commerce, direct to dollars ramifications there. So something that went from, wow, we don't totally understand how we get people to buy that $10,000 handbag from Gucci online became, we know exactly how to target the person who buys the $10,000 handbag online to, oh, we no longer have access to any of the data about the person that buys that handbag. And that all happened in the space of 2006 to 2023, right? That seems like a pretty long time frame, but as more acceleration happens and how we do business, edge always erodes. The arbitrages that were profitable in any industry will shift as more people understand that there's money to be made. That's just the basics of markets are actually pretty darn efficient. They're not efficient for you individually sometimes, but the overall system will take away your capacity to generate alpha. It's a terrific example because for someone like me who comes from sort of the old trust company world and the dramatic foreshadowing for a different question, but sort of the jangly keys are out there and, oh, we can make it easy for you to get to a wide reservoir of customers. It's just not that simple. And not only is it not that simple, it's definitely not permanent, as you just described. And the moat is a lot shallower than is advertised usually. Fascinating to see how traditional brands, they can get comfortable on certain things. And then, yeah, everything changes and they have to go back to square one. And I guess that's both the danger and the opportunity. Yeah. And it's exciting, right? And this is probably why, even though it's a little bit of a scary name, I named the fund Chaotic because the process of finding opportunity and maintaining the opportunity is always in flux. Because markets again will discover, hey, here's an amazing channel for making money. Everyone floods in and slowly your capacity to win is eroded by the fact that everyone else is there. So let's go through your four points of differentiation here, because I think that it's pretty novel and it's an important underscoring of how you think about not only different investments, but the portfolio as a whole. I see that you start out looking for asset light and equity efficient businesses. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is where I am a traditionalist. And who knew that you even could be a traditionalist? An exotic asset class that's really only existed for a couple decades. Arguably, venture goes back to the 60s and maybe a little bit prior, but it is not the same thing as public markets, not even the same thing as other portions of private markets, right? And so when capital costs were cheaper, it became popular to pour in as much money as possible into these businesses to dominate and blitz scale and get as much market share as possible. As capital becomes more expensive, that doesn't work as well. And the approach that I have of asset light and equity efficient was not very popular, even so much as in 21, right? Because it looked like if you just put in more money, you'd get more money out. But I do think that the maybe this is just the fundamental physics of our world, that you need to be able to understand that just because you are putting more capex on the book doesn't necessarily mean that the investment's going to pay off later. So I think that it's important to look at how you're prioritizing different modes to scalability, right? Because if you need minimal equity financing, 
you have the chance to take more, to use sports metaphors, shots on goal, right? You can load the bases and you have more optionality for where you go. And there are certain businesses that obviously require a lot of asset investment, a lot of CapEx, and can't really be equity efficient because they actually just need that money. I'm not in that business because I just don't have that much under management. And I think the perverse incentives of these massive venture funds with billions under management, it's hard to call them venture because venture is venturing into something that you do not know what the outcome is going to be. And the crossover funds, the Tigers and the SoftBanks who came in and tried to make it look more predictable than it is, had some pretty exciting successes. But the exciting successes were definitely a function of the fact that the cost of capital was so low. And because you can never rely on the cost of capital staying low, you do need appropriate entry points in which you think this amount of capital can get us this amount of asset. And keep in mind, assets are a little bit weird in most of venture because we are dealing with software. We're not buying tractors, right? Although maybe you make software for tractors. That's actually a thing. But I believe it's important to not overpay, not make the assumption that you are going to have access to infinite capital because sometimes markets change. And I have met younger investors who have never experienced a downturn because we really didn't have these downturns between, say, 2012 and 23, right? The moment in which something got really gnarly in COVID, we immediately had significant federal stimulus, which meant that the capital that looked like it was going to get very expensive got cheap again. So my approach tends to be you need to have a entry point and an expectation that you can do as much as possible on as little as possible. We have had successes. Two of the seed investments that we did before the current structure of the fund, but so within the same sort of portfolio is Easy Post and Triple Lift, where they raised less than $50 million and actually became billion-dollar unicorns, earning hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Well, not always hundreds of millions of dollars, but Easy Post was an API for tracking your entire infrastructure and shipping process. So if you were someone that needed to get e-commerce products from here to there, it was important to be able to have visibility into your customer points. Triple Lift was a company that helped you do more advertising customization online. Obviously, you can sense a little bit of my background coming through in that because both of those companies are about how do you deliver consumer goods to people in cost-efficient ways? How do you acquire those customers and then subsequently get them the goods? What I saw in the direct-to-consumer failures ended up being lots of money was put in to companies with the expectations that they scaled in ways that is not something that you can do if capital gets more expensive. And so I do like to approach things by saying that your equity has to be able to be something that is attractive to sell to both your investors and your employees, because you believe that you are not only going to have a liquidity event, maybe you go public, that's less and less common these days, maybe you get acquired, but you also have to have the sense that the business itself can be profitable. And maybe not even profitable. Maybe you just need revenue. You put off the profitability a little. I'm still a real traditionalist on this. I do not think that you should raise hundreds of millions of dollars 
and have the expectation that you can have $10 billion exit because that's just asking for miracles, which actually is one of the other points of differentiation of avoiding overcomplexity. Let's focus on that while we're thinking about it. Not getting over your skis, not requiring 50 things to go right in order for a great outcome to happen, that type of thing. Maybe talk about that sort of gravitation toward the simple or simpler. This is why Chaotic as the brand has to ladder back to because the world is chaotic, because there are thousands of different data points and macro conditions and internal conditions within your own company that already increase the friction that you have to overcome. Entropy is a killer in both physics and business. And if you overcomplicate the things that are required for success, you will fail. Because to get back to what portfolio construction looks like, we do look more like music in Hollywood in which it's a hits-driven business. And You would never hire an artist with the expectation that they're going to be able to deliver 10 platinum albums. Your expectation is that they should be able to pay back the first contract they give you, or at least that's how music used to work. Same principle in Hollywood, where the money you put in should have a clear path to getting out of it. And so you just have to acknowledge that there's a high failure rate and steer clear of people who are like, well, dependency one has to be fixed. And then once we do that, we go on to dependency two and three, and then suddenly you're being pitched on five separate miracles. And you have to concentrate on one miracle at a time. You are not Jesus. You are not Buddha. Your capacity to produce multiple miracles, not very good, one at a time. Let's dive back to one of your other points, which is that unique point of leverage for these companies. You talk about pre-existing customer relationships and having a proprietary community to help sort of drive distribution or an innovative technology that helps to get to that escape velocity. Maybe just comment on that while we think about the broader terms here. Because there are so many, I'm going to quote my favorite Donald Rumsfeld quote, Not that I'm advocating for neocons or Donald Rumsfeld, but the best point I ever heard from a government official was him, which is there are unknown unknowns. And startups in particular are fraught with unknown unknowns. And so if you can have even one known known, your chances of success of being able to go from zero to one, of having a repeatable process is much higher if you can say, hey, I have an e-commerce background, and so I have pre-existing relationships with all of the 3PL logistics companies, and I understand what their software looks like, and I am going to build a system that is interoperable, so no matter who you are shipping with, you have access to all of that data. That is the case of the EasyPost investment. In the case of innovative technology, which is obviously a little bit more of our bread and butter here. So one recent example I have is a company called Chroma. Chroma does what is called vector databases. And vector databases, as opposed to relational databases, inferent-driven versus one-to-one-driven. I don't want to get too technical on it because, one, I'm not smart enough to be a database engineer. But what Chroma does is there an open source piece of software that lets you maintain consistency of your own data in building large language models. So what people don't always realize about OpenAI is that 
it's actually very concentrated in the hands of Microsoft and within them. And all of their modeling means that they own the software primitives. I'm not a firm believer in that. Technology should definitely be open and available such that you understand what you're building on. And so in the case of Chroma with an open source vector database, it's now allowing all of these other startups to build out persistent LLMs with your own data, which is much more efficient than something like an open AI, which has already decided what the sources are, what data is persistent, what the weightings are. And so for me, that's actually an innovative piece of tech of saying, hey, if you want to build out your own LLM that is persistent and open AI with your own data, you're going to need a vector database. That makes total sense to me, because to me, I think people are discovering that the ownership of the data, which for about 10 minutes there, people forgot about with OpenAI in place, I think people are now discovering, I may have something of value, I may have something that's tough to police, and I may have a bunch of constituencies that get really upset with me later for releasing this data. The pendulum will swing back, my guess, is in a way that people start defending the data that they own and doing what you describe, which is allowing manipulation of the data and being able to use it, et cetera, on the owner's terms, not based on some Roddenberry-esque notion that the data is out there and everyone has complete and unfettered access to it. This is a fun problem, right? Because OpenAI was trained on public internet sites. So I'm going to use an example from my own book, which is Stack Overflow. We got a 40x return on Stack Overflow. It sold for $1.2 billion at the height. Stack Overflow was a Q&A site just for developers, which doesn't on its face sound like it's worth a ton of money, but it turns out that developers are actually a very crucial part of the total ecosystem. And for 10 years, what developers would do is they would ask questions when they came up with a problem in their own code and stack overflow, the overflow of their own technical stack. And then all of that data, which was community created and actually available to anyone in open source, you could take it and use it, was then fed into different systems. And now keep in mind, OpenAI is heavily funded by Microsoft. And if you go back in the history of Microsoft, highly recommend looking up at the browser wars and how Internet Explorer versus Netscape got played out, we're repeating history. Not the same, but it definitely rhymes. And so a valuable property that was sold for a lot of money that many people put time and effort into is now being used in a totally unexpected way to have trained this LLM open AI. And Stack Overflow is probably going to be able to pull out of it and make some changes, but I'm glad that I'm exited out of the position at this point, 10-year horizon, right? The 1.2 billion, the liquidity there, yay for us. It turns out that this whole new approach, which is that the data was used to train something else, is really meaningful and material. And depending on how specialist you are on certain kinds of data, and developers are very much specialists, right? This use and the persistence of it and the databases it's stored on, we're in the very, very first inning of what's going to be a pretty complicated game. The point of leverage also then gets to, can you be resilient to competition in the face of the entire world changes under your feet? And what do you do when it happens? Just to bring up that final point, which is to say, geez, you're trying to build 
something with the flexibility to adapt to a lot of different changes, but with enough guardrails and deep moats around it so that you've got something of value that's going to get you to your 10 years, essentially. And that's that tricky balancing act. How do you build something that's compelling, but something that also lasts? Lasting is an interesting question, right? This is getting to a little bit more of the academic side of how we treat business and economics, but creative disruption and creative destruction happens all the time. And you don't always know when someone is going to make one singular decision that nukes your business. Apple deciding that you do not default opt your data in to advertising networks. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it was a trillion dollar decision. And nobody expected that to happen. But it happens regularly in tech. Someone will decide Microsoft being a great example, that as they have the scale, as they have the capacity to distribute, they can prioritize their own products, their own software, their own ways of doing business in a way that can kill your business. So I'm not even necessarily convinced that moats exist because maybe somebody gets over the moat and you have to make sure that you have the protection in the castle wall. Maybe you needed to change the moat as you realized the war was changing, right? Right. It's like having molten lead at the top of the castle to melt the soldiers that get across. You need more than one thing. Or again, the world can shift under your feet for things you don't even see. Yeah. So there's a science fiction author who I absolutely love named William Gibson, whose very famous quote is, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And great companies that are still in the process of forming have to realize that they're living in a future that not everyone has caught up to yet. In me talking about this Chroma investment of the vector databases versus relational and doing inference versus one-to-one is one of those moments where it's a very expensive way of doing databases and the compute costs are pretty high. This is why GPUs and manufacturers of it like NVIDIA are doing so well because people who are living in the future did the math on how much more expensive it is to run these types of databases. And everyone has then shifted their portfolio to recognize that those moats have already been overcome. Because the disintermediation of legacy distribution models or a changing of a replatform happens all the time. There was a sort of truism in e-commerce when I got started, which is that you would have to replatform every 18 to 24 months because there was always going to be that much improvement in shopping platforms. And that did end up being true right up until Shopify came in, dramatically simplified it, and then nobody needed to replatform ever. Now, the kicker on this story is we thought, oh, that old rule of you don't have to replatform, you don't have to change technology because you know Shopify became so dominant, then immediately <laughs> smacked into the, and now Apple changed all of the data, so you can't target the customers. So it doesn't matter that you don't need to replatform your shopping cart, because now you have no way of reaching the customers through advertising, you can't figure out who to target anymore. And so these edges you have are in constant process of being eroded. And that's also why I think avoid the overcomplexity, right? Because life is complex enough that when something dramatic happens, you have to be ready to make those moves. And the technology industry is littered with examples of taking these massive risks, right? IBM did not 
foresee that personal computing was going to be interesting because why would anyone need a computer? That's something that we do with you know, dedicated servers and you know, it's for like serious businesses and no individual is going to need it. And then the personal computing revolution happened. And here we all are having computers. And then subsequently, Apple was like, hey, you know, so this thing that we all did to IBM, we're going to do that again. And now it's mobile. Now there's a totally new way of having to approach and design. And that happens always. There is no way to stop change. Gosh, we could talk, I think, for three or four hours, but I can't let that happen because that's a long time for anybody to absorb a podcast. I had a few rapid fire questions here. We've talked about some of it throughout the discussion, but I'm going to fire a couple at you here that are particularly interesting to me. The first one is the concept of that founder who is the first over the wall with the technology versus the idea of letting others make what I would call rookie mistakes. And then you come in and sweep up at the end and you're a little bit more efficient and you've let other people take the hits. How do you think about that from an investment perspective? Yeah, I'm actually agnostic on it. There are people who are firm believers in first mover advantage. There are people who are firm believers in let people make the mistakes, learn, and then go in. I am more inclined to the first over the wall perspective because I still believe in asset light and equity efficient. And letting others make the mistake usually means that you're going to, in a perfect world, which we obviously don't live in, but it's a good heuristic anyways, the amount of risk you take should be correlated to the amount of reward. And the more risk you have, the bigger the possibilities. And if you are letting others make mistakes, you have de-risked some things, which the process of de-risking just means it's slightly more expensive. So even though I'm agnostic, my general inclination is try to be ahead of the path and then try to make sure that you're learning from every single mistake. So next question, my guess is you have sort of a West Coast bent toward this, but how real is the East Coast, West Coast capital culture schism? From my perspective, I think East Coast, the idea would be that it's very conservative, very cash flow driven much less speculative. Is that a real thing in your world? Or is this something that is conjured or conventional wisdom that no longer exists? I'm not sure. I do, however, love that you know, venture capital now looks like it's a rap battle, right? I was going to bring in my iced tea and all the different biggie references, but I'm the least qualified person probably in podcast world to be talking about that stuff. <laughs> I have no idea if I'm qualified at all, although I actually oddly have a background in streetwear because having spent a lot of time in retail, I've actually sold a lot of goods and services related to the space. I do not think it is real because Silicon Valley used to be a place and now Silicon Valley is a mentality. This is commonly referred to as the network state now, something that Balaji, who I guess has no last name like Madonna, not that he doesn't, Balaji being both Profit and former CTO of Coinbase and Dreesen Horowitz partner, makes the point that we have fewer borders because the internet has connected us. And so I think East Coast, West Coast looked like a really important thing when it was more important to be geographically, physically proximate to people. And even though I myself am a West Coast, born in Silicon Valley kind of person, temperamentally, all of my companies were East Coast companies. 
And part of this is long and involved things about social status and how we fund certain kinds of founders. Sadly, I am a woman, which is a factor that I have to integrate into every decision that I make, which sounds stupid. But depending on where you are, you have to have more provable success metrics. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. For me, I liked the East Coast model of having to understand slightly more about what you were doing because it was easier for me to raise capital showing that I always needed to be a little bit more buttoned up. I don't necessarily know that it's going to remain true. I actually find myself investing much more heavily in international founders than I had ever expected. So East Coast, West Coast schisms are just not necessarily going to be true. If you look at the be less formed, be more scaled, cleared, planned, because we're just in a cycle of capital in which it's more expensive. And so even if you have a really good plan, your capacity to actually raise those mega rounds, this sort of East Coast, pull yourself together, you go to Goldman Sachs, and you know, you do something a little bit more normal. I just don't know that we're going to have that capital reality as a consistent thing. To follow on to that, you alluded to it in your answer, international opportunities, Silicon Valley, Silicon Alley, Austin, et cetera, that dominates attention. But there's lots going on in Europe and Asia and South America and Africa. And how do you think about that and the opportunities there? How do you even begin to understand what's happening when you've got not only differences in the tech, but also the culture, the language, the geography? Is it just that much more work that it makes it more difficult or is it that much more exciting? that it just plays right into your chaos theme. If you are trying to model the world as the more risk you take, the more potential for reward, it's good to look for hungry founders. And Americans are not as hungry as the rest of the world. And I mean hunger in the, wow, if I do not change, my life doesn't look great. America has been pretty successful for a good long streak and I will never count on it continuing because at any point, someone who is more competitive, more eager and hungrier to win can come and change everything for you. And I am very interested in making sure that I find those people. Obviously, I still think that American C-Corps are the gold standard of making sure that you have the right corporate structures and governance in place. But I love territories like the Baltics and the Balkans and Latin America, slightly less so LATAM because there's just a little bit more complexity involved. But if you are looking for someone who is super hungry to change one aspect of the world, because again, you know, one miracle at a time, you need to be looking everywhere for it. And so East Coast, West Coast doesn't really matter because it's definitely a hunger versus the more capacity they have to respond quickly, the happier I am as an investor. One last question, and then I will let you go. Thank you so much for your time. Post-COVID, lessons, trends, we just touched on one now as the world is getting more international and the opportunity set is that much wider, that much faster. Is there anything you're really focusing on that the last three years have caused to change your mind on certain things, maybe hit the reset button on certain things that you held dear in your thinking? It's really challenging, right? Because COVID changed absolutely everything and also nothing really changed. And that's true of every revolution, every dislocation, every massive shift in the way the world looks from Gutenberg on to now. 
we don't necessarily know all the second and third order effects. One of chaotic sort of primary viewpoints has been that because humans are not very good at even determining first order effects, you try not to think about second and third order effects because we're just not that smart. We're pretty smart. We're a reasonably intelligent, capable bunch of people, but I could not tell you what the third order effects of something like a Facebook was, right? No one could have predicted that this thing in which you have a social graph suddenly becomes a massive source of geopolitical instability. (laughs) Maybe someone predicted it, but you couldn't have predicted it perfectly. And anyone who is claiming to be a seer that always understands the exact outcomes is just bullshitting you. And so my post-COVID lessons are, again, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. more they change, the more it's the same. Yes, work from home is probably going to be a contentious space forever. Gen Z has completely grown up on the internet and that has consequences because they view the virtual world as real as the physical world. And I think they're right. All of those things are going to have consequences. And we're in a period of such intense acceleration because we may be going through a monetary reformation if it is possible to separate capital from state the way we separated religion from state. That's something that we're going to have to look for. All of these trends of geography becoming less important are going to have first-order consequences we've barely lived through, as I'm sure any commercial real estate holder knows right now. So understanding what the second and third-order effects are is mostly do the same things you always did. Make sure that you understand the assets that you have put in and the equity structure works such that you can survive understand that you have to have a point of differentiation in any product to sell it to a customer because otherwise you're a commodity. If you are not resilient to market changes, you will die. That is the natural life cycle of everyone. And if you try to be too complex, integrating every single data point that comes in from the world, you're going to go nuts. Julie, this is great stuff. Very nourishing, extremely educational for me. And I hope our listeners found it as well, because I'd love to have you back on even when certain major seismic events happen. I'd love to hear your viewpoint on it. In the meantime, how do people find you? How do people find your fund? Again, before let me get my compliance monsters away and just say this is not an endorsement. This is education. How do we find you? How do we stay in touch? I do my best to be a very accessible person. I tend to think of myself as a being the lighthouse to everyone who is looking to come in to the safe harbor, <laughs> just making compliance jokes there of trying to make sure you can actually build the business you want. So you can find me on Twitter, or unfortunately, I guess now I have to call it x.com. My handle there is almost medium. I have a personal website that I write on every single day. So You will always know my opinions and thoughts on every single day because today is my 942nd day of writing in a row. That is jfredrickson, juliefredrickson.com. And my email address is super simple. It is just julie at chaotic.capital. Julie, thanks so much. That will all be in the show notes so people will be able to find it. Thank you so much for being on. This was a lot of fun and I feel a little bit better armed for the disorder that we're walking into in the coming years. So appreciate you being on. Thank you for having me. It's going to be a fun time and hopefully we all manage to make some money. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. 
head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.